Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Today, my guest on Work With Purpose is the Australian Tax Commissioner, Chris Jordan AO. Chris has held the position of Tax Commissioner since 2013, but his first full-time public service role was as a policeman. We'll come to that in a moment, but since taking over the tax office, Chris Jordan has overseen a dramatic change in culture, practice and performance. Indeed, that attitude and willingness to change and to experiment in the ATO was recognised in the recent Public Sector Innovation Awards when the single-touch payroll system was the winner of the Culture and Capability Award. Before his time with the ATO, Chris made his reputation in the private sector where he served in a variety of roles and spent 12 years as the chairman of partners at KPMG in New South Wales. Chris Jordan's term as tax commissioner ends in 2024, but between now and then he has plenty on his plate, like the rest of the leadership across the APS. He has had to deal with the challenges of the COVID-19 global pandemic, focused on how the critically important taxation system could be adapted to help smooth the crisis. And that, as we all know, is a long way from over, and particularly this most important role that the ATO will play in the weeks, months and indeed years ahead. He joins me now from the ATO's office in Sydney. Chris Jordan, welcome to Work With Purpose. Good morning. A pleasure to be here with you. Now, listen, before we get started and we come to the discussion about COVID and about the role of the tax office, uh, policemen, tell me that story. Well, um, I was sort of really part of a police family, I suppose. My father... Um, was a policeman, and so were two of his brothers. You know, they'd uh, grown up in Coffs Harbour, um, the Depression time. Uh, all the boys had to come down to Sydney to try to find work. Um, three of them ended up in the police force. He was quite a senior person. He was a superintendent first class, sort of in charge of the greater Sydney metropolitan area um, when he retired. Um, and I had this notion of um, uh, wanting to be a barrister, uh, and I thought it would be a good way to get into the police force, get into their legal uh, prosecutions area, have a great grounding um, as, uh, as a lawyer, as a barrister. And I started what was called this Barristers Admission Board um, course. Uh, they had an SAB and a BAB. I'm not sure if they even have them anymore. Um, but it was a bit hard to uh, combine, you know, the shift work. I suppose in those days the police force wasn't all that flexible and probably uh, uh, organising to get to classes was a bit difficult. Um, I got put in a very nice little area. I, uh, I grew up in uh, Kingsford, a Ramwick area, but they put me over in Chatswood. They said, that's a nice, quiet little area for you. 
Um, so you can try to get to your, your, your classes. So, um, look, I only lasted 12 months and I realised it was going to be a bit difficult to get the qualifications and to actually then have a pathway to the prosecution unit. Um, so I went to New South Wales Uni and uh, started a Bachelor of Commerce. I did pretty well in the first year, so I could then transfer over and I did the Bachelor of Commerce, Bachelor of Law combined degree there um, and then the College of Law. Um, as a little uh, uh, anecdote to that, I now chair the Business Advisory Council for the School of Business for the uh, New South Wales University. Nicholas Moore from Macquarie Bank uh, was the prior chair. I was on the council and when he stood down, he asked if I would take that on. So it's a great little uh, follow-up now to be uh, actually uh, an advisor, uh, well, chairman of the Advisory Council. Um, for the very, very large school of business, including the MBA program, all sorts of things. Uh, good. Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, in fact, I'm an alumni of the University of New South Wales Business School as well. I did a Bachelor of Commerce way back in the 1980s. So I'm very pleased that you are continuing to supervise the uh, great University of New South Wales. But if I might take you back uh, to that time growing up in a police family and that notion and ambition to serve, where did you learn growing up in and around that sort of police environment that you felt attracted to public service? Well, um, look, I was one of seven, so I was number six out of seven. Um, uh, My parents owned our own house. But it was very small. I mean, it was basically a two-bedroom house with a, a closed-in front veranda. So um, seven kids stacked in there um, sort of uh, meant you had to um, put up with others and, and uh, have to deal, uh, be quick at dinner time. Um, I, I still am a quick eater. People say, you really eat quickly? I say, yes, uh, uh, I do. Um, so I, I, I sort of grew up in a room with two double bunks and a chest of drawers um, and uh, we weren't poor by any means, but um, uh, it did make me appreciate uh, a, a willingness to want to actually um, do something better. It was just assumed in our family that everyone would go to university. Um, Mum only did uh, a job at home, bringing up the seven kids, uh, and that was certainly enough, but it was sort of just put into us that you will go to university. So it wasn't any great discussion. It was just an assumption um, that that would uh, happen and all the kids before me. So it was a bit cramped. Um, You had to learn to get on with people. But the important part, when I did become a police officer... I have some very distinct um, memories uh, of um, in in this chats with this some fairly wealthy areas in Northbridge, Castle Craig, um, Linfield, that sort of thing. And as a 19-year-old growing up in a modest house, um, I'm not doing the log cabin stuff, you know, but it was it was modest. you know, I, I had shoes, so that's okay. I didn't have to work, you know, that whole log cabin. Um, yeah, it was uh, interesting though, wasn't it, that at, back at that time everyone was pretty much in the same boat, you know, big families. Um, life was a lot simpler. 
It was. You could go out. We would go out. Mum would be saying, get outside, right? We'd go riding around on my sister's hand-me-down bike, which I was most embarrassed about because it was a girl's bike. And um, uh, and my mum was a great knitter. She would sit on the football sidelines knitting. So uh, when I first had my first bought jumper, I was just so excited. And um, I used to talk about bought food, you know, because uh, mum would always uh, make our own things to, to, to go anywhere. Listen, you went, um, you went into the private sector and obviously performed very strongly before you came into the ATO. And I do want to talk about that because I was having a, few, a chat with a few people this week who tell stories of your early days when you arrived at the ATO. And it was obviously pretty clear that you came in with a clear idea about what it was that you wanted to do. And I thought that really that transition from the private sector to the public sector and this notion of what can the public sector learn and indeed as we go through COVID, what can the public service learn from the private sector? Um, and, and look, I think the things over the last uh, year have very much uh, complemented what I did when I came in here was just to challenge um, the status quo. Um, I often used to ask, now, why do we do that? And I was told, well, it's just required. Uh, required by whom? Uh, well, it's a regulation. Um, well, if it's a regulation, it must be written down. Can you show me? Um, and then it either was just an internal practice statement or it was just the way things were done. So it was really, uh, uh, in a polite way, just sort of challenging um, a whole lot of things that just seemed to be overly complex, overly bureaucratic, checklist-driven. And I suppose there was a reason that I was the first person ever to be appointed to the commissioner from outside of the ATO. Every single commissioner had come up through the ranks before that. Um, And Martin Parkinson, who was Secretary of Treasury at the time and Wayne Swan was Treasurer, made it clear to me that they felt that the ATO, whilst it was a great institution, had become a bit insular and had a little bit um, detached from its stakeholders and that um, it was very black and white. And uh, as, as, uh, as we know, there's uh, rapidly changing business processes. It's hard to get law uh, onto the political agenda for the parliament to pass. And um, there, there, there was uh, a very technical view of the ATO that sort of lacked a bit of commerciality um, and also just bound the people up. So we, we, we came up with this notion of reinvention. In other words, look, it's not broken. We just need to reinvent. We need to freshen everything up. We need to open the doors, windows. We need to declutter. Like, we threw out tens of thousands of pages of instructions and checklists and we stopped doing all sorts of things because they were just being done because they'd always been done. And um, it really enabled... I'm firmly of the view, very firmly of the view, that you've got to give a good staff experience for them to give a good client experience. 
So I really wanted the staff to feel better about their day-to-day work and not feel bound up in process and checklists. Because if they were bound up in process, what do you think they're going to do to their clients? They're going to treat the client the same way, right? They're going to be rigid. They're going to be, you know, uh, uh, unforgiving in a way. um, And they're going to tick a box. And if you don't fit in a box, um, I'll just put you to the side because I don't know what to do with you sort of thing. So I, I talked about a lot about exercising common sense and judgment. Here you are, you've got a lot of uh, uh, education, a lot of training, you're intelligent, you're well experienced. You should be capable of exercising common sense and judgment. And look, if you get it wrong, we're going to stand behind you. You know, everyone was afraid, afraid of getting something wrong. People, a lot of people actually liked the checklist because they knew exactly what they had to do, they had to tick these boxes. However, most people did understand that a lot of what they were doing was just silly and unnecessary. So this was really embraced. You know, I had friends um, and, and colleagues when I, uh, this role was announced, they said, are you mad? <laughs> do, do you know what you're getting yourself in for? <laughs> they said, it's sort of like the police, you know, it's a closed shop. Um, <laughs> You, you will just be chewed up and spat out of this big machine, this big ship that's going down the ocean. You won't be able to do anything. Well, it was actually the total contrary. People would say to me, thank goodness, you know, we're being given an opportunity to um, make a judgment and make a decision and get on with what we, we really know what we need to do. And I think... What's happened now has it has exactly pushed that as, as a notion right across the public service. We have to be adaptable. I mean, we have redeployed 5,000 people within the ATO to help on these stimulus measures. We've had up to 15,000 people working from home. We brought on 2,000 casuals to train them up for tax time as well as the stimulus measures. This is just inconceivable in the past. And I've got to say, the unions have been really good on this front too. The CPSU, the main one, and the uh, ASU, the Australian Services Union, you know, they could have been obstructionist in a way of, uh, well, you can't force these people to do a function that is different from what they are classified as. They didn't... uh, We we spent a lot of time talking with the unions and they were very cooperative and I think they sort of knew that the community required this. The people love it. I mean, we've got the highest engagement scores from our staff ever since records have been kept. We've got higher scores than any other large, um, you know, uh, public sector agency. So this is this is you know people people have really enjoyed the the ability to feel like they're doing something good. Uh, so interestingly, we now sit at you know again that uncertainty that sort of is is sitting ahead of us now. We really just don't know what the impacts are going to be on jobs, on business, on tax revenues. What are you 
now doing and saying to your team to prepare them for the future, given that it's been such a busy and tough year for people working inside the ATO? First of all, obviously the bushfires at the beginning of the year, uh, then the early stages, the crisis stage of the COVID. But given that there is so much more to go, how are you preparing your workforce to continue to deliver for the Australian people? Look, it's, um, it's not an easy task uh, and I'm really fortunate to have um, such a talented executive team and leadership team. You know, we really have focused over the last five years in building a high quality uh, team of leaders. Um, and uh, we, we've really encouraged uh, people to take a pause because you're right, the bushfires happen. So we have to deliver, you know, programs of some significance. Then we had to do the stimulus measures. We only had a matter of weeks to build a system to deliver tens of billions of dollars through JobKeeper, through cash flow stimulus, through early release of super. This was an enormous task that I had to reassure government we could actually do. People were working seven days a week, you know, extraordinary hours every single day um, to be able to do this. Now, it's just not sustainable, clearly, forever. However, we do now have um, JobKeeper 2.0 and, you know, JobKeeper uh, 1.2 and that sort of thing. So uh, we've got to sort of keep up a momentum, but I've been encouraging people to say, look, take the weekend off, you know, have a break. Things will get done, you know. Uh, You can't all be working that um, period of time. So there's an enormous dedication amongst the staff. There's this enormous pride and support for each other. Uh, But you're you're right, it it, it can't go on forever. So I think... um, this time we had a couple of months rather than a couple of weeks. So it's made it a lot easier to be put in JobKeeper 2.0, as we call it, um, rather than that enormous and quite pressured, you know. If we hadn't got it together, you know, <laughs> people would be going, where's the money? And we've been paying out the money for JobKeeper within four days of applications. So we've been turning this around pretty quickly. Um, And I think there's a huge amount of pride, both at the executive level, but also at the the level of people dealing with this. I mean, we've got the lawyers who are used to doing all these technical analysis on phones, talking to people, right? Some of these lawyers don't talk to anyone other than, you know, (laughs) some of their their colleagues. and, And they're out there going this is a whole different world. And I can see a huge benefit for our organisation, the ATO, by the empathy that people have given and the understanding of personal difficulties. I mean, in one July this year, we had 400,000 applications just on the early release of super. We had 740,000 lodgements 
The prior year, which had that um, low and middle income uh, uh, tax offset, Lumito, we had something like 104,000. We had planned on six times that, and it came in at 7.4 times that. So there was a little bit of slowness in those first few hours on 1 July. But you think of 400,000 people wanting access to that second lot of $10,000. Now, to me, that, and I don't want to get into the politics of whether this is good or bad, but to me that indicated a sense of need, right? If you were a young person and you wanted the money and sort of to buy something or you wouldn't have bothered on 1 July, you know, you would have got around to it. I know my kids, right, they'd talk about it for a month and then maybe get around to doing it. If you're there on 1 July, you want, you need the money. And here we are being able to pay it out or, or approve it to be paid out by the super funds because it's actually the, the super fund that pays the money to the people. But that's extraordinary, 400,000. 7.4 times the number of lodgements in the all-time high of the year before. 740,000 lodgements in one day. Now, one of the features of this podcast are the questions from IPA's future leaders. And it's this question from Megan Aponte-Payne from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet that goes to the very issue that you just raised. But what Megan wants to know is really sort of the mechanics of how did you make it work? How did you make that Happen. So her question is, tax reform and associated systems changes usually take months or even years to design and implement. What were the biggest challenges in implementing the JobKeeper program in a matter of weeks? And I think if I can suggest what she's looking for us to really understand is, what did you do inside the tax office? How did you make that agility work? How did you make it happen? How did you bring the teams together? Well, I suppose um, every year we have a similar thing, but on a, uh, a smaller scale called tax time. You know, 1 July, the government um, often makes changes during the year, um, not just to the rate of tax, but to, you know, uh, deductions or offsets or credits. So we always have to put through um, significant changes to our system to deal with tax time. So there was an existing process and governance arrangements in place that we could pick up and use, but on a whole of ATO on a much bigger scale. So um, it was like a massive tax time exercise. And in in our organisation, because we have so much of it driven by IT, um, we have to have very strong governance around who does what and when, and how to plan it out. We have very good people at project planning and at um, using external expertise where are required to provide a quality assurance process. So in this case, there was a combination from our client engagement group, the old compliance group, because they had to... Um, determine the eligibility and then do any follow-up compliance activities. There was our uh, EST group, our IT group, that had to actually build 
the, the, the system to cope with this. And then there was our service delivery group that had to man the phones uh, to actually answer the queries and to send correspondence out and to send the, you know, request to the Reserve Bank to pay money out, send the money out to employers. So three very distinct arms of the ATO had to come together and work as one. And that, there was, everyone left their egos at the door. Um, there was an absolute knowledge that this was a whole of ATO. You know, it's funny, you mentioned KPMG. You know, uh, as chairman, I used to talk about a whole K, the whole KPMG, you know, because uh, there used to be tax, uh, audit and consulting, and they'd all go off and do their own thing, you know, with the clients. And here I am uh, 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 over a number of years talking about the one ATO, you know. <laughs> it's the same thing. And this was a classic example. And our reinvention program allowed us to be able to do this, to give us the flexibility, to give us the, the cultural, you know, attributes that people needed to be able to say, yes, I know I'm part of a team, I'm willing to do something that I've never done before, I'm willing to get out of my comfort zone because I know it's for the benefit of the one ATO. And that was really the way that we were able to do it. I mean, some of the things like uh, you mentioned the, the single-touch payroll, you know, without that, we couldn't have actually been able to match the employees with the employer's statement. So right there, there was an inbuilt compliance check because people had put in every payday who they were paying, the tax file number and what they were paying them. And therefore, when they put in their application for employees, well, we could say, yep, we can see you've got 20 employees. Um, you're saying your turnover's dropped by, by 30%. There you go. You're, you're, you're eligible. That wouldn't have happened. Uh, online services for agents. We got rid of Auskey, which is which is a really clunky way of authenticating yourself with the ATO. It was clunky because it was attached to your machine. Whatever machine you use to register the Auskey, typically your desktop in an office, you had to use <laughs> all the time. Now, by doing online services, clearly you could use a smart device, you could use your home device, you could use whatever. Well, thankfully, that was all brought in before this because there would have been a huge issue with tax agents being able to lose BAS forms and uh, and, and you had to lodge the BAS to get this early, you know, this uh, cash flow stimulus. This one hasn't had much publicity, but, you know, people have been paid billions, tens of billions of dollars to, uh, to the employer. JobKeeper goes to the employee, but this, uh, an early release of super is the super fund paying uh, the member, but this early release, uh, this cash flow boost... Um, again, we couldn't have done because the agents wouldn't have been able to have put the BAS forms in that, that generated the payment. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm a small business owner and I can account for that. I can tell you that it certainly delivered for us and it certainly delivered for businesses that I know and that was gratefully accepted. Now to a second question from an IPA future leader and this time it's from 
Holly Noble from the Department of Finance. And Holly asks you, Commissioner, the ATO has released some great guidelines to streamline the claimable allowances for working from home. What other innovations do you see on the horizon for the ATO as Australians change the way we work to accommodate a more flexible digital world where people work from home and are incorporating new types of business into their lives? Yeah, um, it's really important to be able to give that help and guidance to people um, because, you know, people don't want to be there, you know, with receipts and trying to work out, you know, precise figures. We do have an app, uh, the ATO app, you can download, um, and it does have a My Deductions um, feature to it where you can take a photo of a receipt and you can upload that amount directly into your tax return at, at year end. So if you buy a briefcase or something, you can, you can um, put that down uh, in the relevant box, take a photo of the receipt so you've got it there, and come year in, you, you put that in uh, work-related expenses in your tax return. So we're trying to help what, and, and do that, and we're trying to help with guidance there. Um, I think for individuals, um, the big issue we have is the uh, claiming of work-related expenses and um, whether people are sort of, you know, it's incredible when you look at the graphs and you see these extraordinary spikes around $150 for laundry um, expenses and $300 for unsubstantiated expenses. It's like there's all these little graphs and then this enormous, you know, line comes up where people think they can claim these amounts. So we've, we've done a lot of education on that front. But if we look at the small business area, that's where I think we, we do have a greater opportunity for streamlining even further. If we can use natural systems like bank accounts, let's say, um, cash is becoming increasingly less um, and some places are now saying no cash rather than only cash. <laughs> no cash because they don't want it you know, dirty, it's full of germs and, and all those things. So if we could say, OK, um, you let your bank know that give us approval and we draw down from your bank all the deposits, that's your income, and all the outgoings, as long as you don't take private stuff out of there, are your deductions. Because with these automatic write-offs up to 20000 50000 most small businesses don't spend more than that on any one thing. You know, the most thing they might spend on is, 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 a, is a computer or something like that. So we could draw down that each quarter, do your BAS for you, and at the end of the year, you might still want to go to your accountant or tax agent to, you know, true it up and say, OK, well, this is what the tax office has done for three quarters. Um, can, you, can you make sure that the overall is, is uh, to my advantage? Because <laughs> people might have a suspicion that we would err on um, <laughs> uh, the revenue side. But, but there's some of the things. It's all about tapping into a natural system. And that's why STP, it tapped into a payroll. We had people and others saying, oh, no, we want this or we want that. We said, no, we are only going to collect what they pay the person on the payday. <laughs> that's it, right? We're not going to ask them for anything more because their payroll function is a natural system. 
and so is their banking. So if if we think you're you sit in the right range for your you know, industry and number of employees and, and uh, area of, of, of operation. Um, we've got very sophisticated benchmarks now, very sophisticated analytics. Well, if you sit within a range, we might go, we'll just take your bank account and that's it. That's your BAS, that's your tax return, that's everything. And we will tell you, just give us five grand every quarter or... 50 grand, you know, whatever whatever the, the, the tax is. And that's it. We'll send you a notice. You transfer the money. All your obligations could be done. That's some of the exciting stuff that uh, is on the horizon. So in terms of this, as a final question, you've been very generous with your time. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for spending some of that time with us today. But as I mentioned in the opener, you're here in your current role until 2024. You've been here since 2013. When you get to the end of your time as the tax commissioner, what would you like people to say about the time Chris Jordan spent as the tax commissioner? Um, We have uh, one of our sort of uh, mission vision statements as being known uh, as a leading tax and super administration uh, known for our contemporary service, expertise and um, integrity. When I say leading, I don't mean comparing us against other tax authorities around the world. If we do that, we actually brush up well and uh, one of the international consulting firms has uh, said that the Australian Taxation Office overall is the best performing tax office in the world revenue authority in the world. I don't want to compare ourselves to um, other government departments or agencies. I want to compare the tax office to the best of any large organisation that has a complex client base. And that's the comparison if people can say, well, against any large organisation, private or public, the tax office actually performs well when measured against that. We will never have people jumping for joy dealing with us, right? <laughs> we, we, we start from a difficult position, right? And our relationship is about me taking money from you, right? That's, that's it. However, given that, <laughs> that, that starting point, I want people to think when they deal with us, that that was about as good as I ever would have thought a transaction with a tax office would be. And it's it's just that, isn't it? It's about simplicity. It's about clarity. You really have to keep things simple. So if you are able to instill that people and that feeling and that sense of empathy that vast workforce you have there at the ATO will help to get the work done and you will encourage them in their role to deliver on the big vision that you've set for them. It's as simple as lots of consultants that will charge you a lot of money to make things complex. So stay simple and keep saying it. I've been saying that since about the end of 2013 and I still say it. 
I want to compare us with the best of anyone in the world and I want people to think that's about as good as I ever would have expected. Well, Chris Jordan, thank you so much for your time today, but also thank you for your service. And just before I do go, how are you holding up personally? It's obviously a challenging, difficult time, and I'm sure during those seven days a week, 18 hours a day through the crisis that you would have been front and centre, how are you holding up? Uh, Look, I'm really fortunate that I have an extraordinarily good uh, executive. I'm a great delegator. They appreciate being able to get on and deal with their job uh, and not have me uh, interfering all the time. So they're the ones that are probably uh, 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 a little bit more pressured than I am. Excellent. Well, Chris Jordan, thank you so much for your time today and thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. The reaction and the response to Work With Purpose has continued to be just fantastic. And I think the opportunity and the generosity of the APS leadership to give us some of their valuable time each week to share their insights is just as the commissioner has done today, but I just think it's so valuable for people to hear what the leadership are up to, but also the pride that the leadership has in their people and the way that they continue to work to deliver because we are a long way from clear of the impact of this wicked, wicked virus. Um, Listen, this week you will see promotion and I hope you do see uh, social media promotion and the links uh, to the program. So if you would be able to share that with your groups, that would be gratefully accepted. If you do have time to rate or review the program, that would be gratefully accepted. It's just important to get that stuff done because it does help us to be discovered. Um, But listen, I think it is important that we do try to get it seen far and wide because it's the work of people like Chris Jordan and his executive team uh, that we need people to hear and understand what they're doing. So if you could do that, much appreciated. Thanks again to the wonderful team here at IPA doing a great job leading the APS and, and, and helping with the education and also to the Australian Public Service Commission because without their ongoing support, this program would not happen. It really is fantastic and it doesn't happen without them. But for the moment, another great conversation. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.